Amen, and good morning in town. If you don't know me, my name is Steve Yates. I'm also one of the pastors here. I'd like to give a very brief word of scripture introduction before Donna comes up. Last week, we got to meet George Ham, who is the Reformed Universities Fellowship uh, minister now who's going to be at Emory. George did a wonderful job unpacking Philippians chapter 3, the first half. If you weren't here, please check out that sermon. But the sermon and the passage are all about rest. And not just physical rest, but rather rest in Jesus' work for us. Rest in our righteousness not being what God counts. Rest in the fact that it's not our laurels or our upbringing or our actions or lack thereof, but rest in Jesus. Now, Donna's going to come up and read the second half of Philippians chapter 3. The scripture reading this morning is from Philippians 3, 12 through 4, 1. Not that I have already obtained this or am already perfect, but I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me his own. Brothers, I do not consider that I have made it my own, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Let those of us who are mature think this way, and if in anything you think otherwise, God will reveal that also to you. Only let us hold true to what we have attained. Brothers, join in imitating me and keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. For many of whom I have often told you and now tell you even with tears, walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their end is destruction, their God is their belly, and they glory in their shame with minds set on earthly things. But our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. Therefore, my brothers, whom I love and long for, my joy and crown, Stand firm thus in the Lord, my beloved. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. It's a weird juxtaposition, isn't it? An entire half of a chapter based on rest. Not working, not earning, not counting anything that you have done or are as of any value to you. Rather, seeing it as rubbish compared to Christ Jesus. But then right after, Paul beginning to use language like pressing on, taking hold, straining, moving quickly towards a goal. It is almost a schizophrenic passage in some respects, except it's not. There's an old saying that pastors really only have like one or two sermons. And we kind of use different passages and speak those. And I don't exactly know whether that's true or not, but today it is. But it's not my fault. It's Paul's fault, okay? Those of you who are with us 
about a month ago when I had the honor of getting to share God's word with you from Philippians 2, will remember we talked about something called the indicative imperative, the idea that God um, in his word, through the writers of his word, tells us what is true, what is true about himself, what is true about the world, what is true about us, what is true about what Christ has done in and for us and is continuing to do. And then linked to that, usually after that, then he's going to call us to action. Not before, not without. It's almost always after. And it's because we are not to root our Christian life in our own power, in our own strength, in our own action, but rather it's what comes out of what Jesus has done for us that we can be children of God. It's, it's a love for Jesus. It's a passion for Jesus. It's a, a devotion to him, not based in trying to earn or keep God's affection or attention, but rather springing out of, pouring over from our experience of what we already have. Now, this repetition um, we might think is, is boring or weird, um, but we're human, and we don't learn stuff very easily. Um, and so often in the Bible, biblical writers will repeat over and over and over again different patterns, hoping that if our brains are bashed enough with the same thing, um, it'll click, and we'll remember it. And indeed, Paul is doing that here. Paul is also going further with some of the language subtly. He's even referring to something that Jimmy talked about six, seven weeks ago. So I don't believe maybe you'll remember that um, explicitly. But uh, six, seven weeks ago, Jimmy talked about how most of society dictates how they live. Another way of saying that is, is how does society define what is good, what is right, what's moral, what's beautiful, what's valuable, and then we base our actions on that kind of structure, that worldview. Jimmy talked about, too, we might think on one hand that we get those definitions, those values from somebody else outside of ourselves, usually some form of institution, religion, philosophy, ideology, something like that, or we have another end, we have another take, and that's that we define those things for ourselves. This one is very popular um, in our wider pop culture today, um, the idea of living out your own truth, um, you do you, you um, discovering your authentic self, and then living out of that becomes one of the great values. However, both of these are train wrecks, ultimately. Ultimately, on one hand, if we live with someone else dictating those things to us, either that someone else is perfect and we should follow them, or they're not. And that's the call that we must make. For Paul, Paul found himself growing up in that seat. We read again earlier in the chapter that Paul was a Pharisee of Pharisees. He had the pedigree to prove it. He had the degree to prove it. He had the status to prove it. So even for Paul, he listened to the authorities give him what is good and true and right and moral, and he did it. 
And he even did it so well that he attained that unique spot that sometimes happens on this side of the fence where you begin to dictate those for everyone else. And your joy is not in trying to become righteous. Your joy is looking down your nose at everyone else who is not. And this was the role Paul played. On the flip side, unfortunately, this is a train wreck as well. I mean, ultimately, we know that we're broken. We know our hearts are wicked, that we don't make good choices, that we often, always, in fact, to some degree, we even set it in our confessing prayer, which I really, really love so much so that I want to turn back to it. We corrupt everything we touch. I love that because it has this view that it's not saying that you or I are as evil as we could somehow be, but, but that everything we do is just tainted. Everything we do is out of our selfish desires. It's not pure. It's not according fully to God's will because some of us is always mixed in there a little bit. What's interesting is people who are on kind of this side of the fence who want to define things for themselves, what they don't realize is actually horseshoe theory is at work here. If you're not familiar with horseshoe theory, it's the belief that anytime there is a spectrum, often the people or things that are on the, the extreme ends of that actually are much more similar as if you bent the spectrum into a horseshoe than we might think. In our culture today, it is actually not okay to define your own truth. It is not okay to live according to your authentic self unless your truth and your authentic self is part of the accepted group of beliefs that other people dictate. It's just, on one hand, it might be a religious culture or an explicit ideology or a specific group telling you what to do, and over here, it's just kind of more the
culture and in ours, living is usually considered actually just to be a passive activity. If you're sitting in a chair and I ask you, what are you doing? And you say, I'm living. At best, you are being sarcastic, and at worst, you are very confused about what I am asking, despite the fact that it is true what you are saying. But if you're on a walk, and I ask you, what are you doing? And you say, I'm walking. Okay, I understand. There's action. But it's also a lot deeper than that. In the Old Testament, the idea of walking with God is a continual image of one's entire life, one's entire journey, what God is doing over time. Now, sometimes this is literal. We see at the very beginning of Genesis, Adam literally walks with God in the cool of the day. You know, the, the most distilled down idea of our relationship with God outside of our union with Christ that we have. Moses, likewise, though through a veil, talks with God face to face. But ultimately, most of the, the heroes of the faith that we would see in the Old Testament, those who ultimately are deemed faithful, are considered to be those who have walked with God. And almost always, this is not said as a present tense judgment, but rather a past tense. It's not the way we would maybe in, in old school Southern evangelicalism say, you know, how's your walk? Talking about um, whether somebody's walking with Jesus or not in a moment. But rather it might be the type of thing that was said as a, at a funeral. I mean, please, may it be that at all of our funerals, if Christ has not come back, that we could have been said to have been those who have walked with God. The reason why I believe this is important is because so often, I believe in our own sinfulness, we are horrible at evaluating our own relationship with God. We are absolutely horrible at it. Sometimes we can fall into one of these two ditches. We can fall into believing God's grace, but then struggling to ever serve him. Or more often, especially in a high-functioning society, we run into the, how many religious things can I do to make God happy? But I want you to hear what Paul says. This is verse 15. This is what I think the most important word in the whole passage is. All of us, two letters, who are mature, should take such a view of things speaking to that part A I was talking about. All of us. Paul defines maturity in the faith as those not who have stopped sinning, not those who have a certain amount of biblical knowledge, not those who have great church attendance or service, but rather those whose lives are marked by the rhythm of part A, the rhythm of knowing who they are in Jesus and then reacting to that or out of that. Ironically, that actually ends up driving us to understand our sin more. <laughs> I mean, we, we, we end up often 
thinking of ourselves worse or, or at least understanding the depths of how that horrible thing that happened in your life, the gospel is still true and active in your life. You're okay. 
all of us who are mature should take such a view of things because all of us in that maturity, in that rhythm, get to stand together as the people of God. We are not people who came to a building, paid for religious services, got a get-out-of-hell-free card stamp, and then are paying for that card the dividends for the rest of our lives by remaining active. No, we are a part of a, an ongoing community of change, of rhythm, where we are continually revisiting who we are in Jesus, and that is continually driving us to loving and serving others around us as we are more transformed by him. You need to know you're okay. Now, some might say, well, Steve, that, that doesn't really actually sound great. That sounds some laughy, shiny, cotton candy gospel type feel. No, I know how bad of a person I am. But I also know that if I'm perpetually always only feeling an absolute failure in the Christian life, if I reach back to my, like, seventh grade self who believed that I had to have a 30-minute quiet time followed by a five-minute prayer time that would eventually increase over time, and if I fully believed that I had to have, you know, 74% victory over every one of the sins I struggled with back then by the time I was 30 years old or some other conscious or unconscious algorithm that I have actually given my heart to, I will never have the energy and the power and the strength and the peace which Paul talks about here in chapter 3. The idea that Paul can look on this group of people who are just as broken as you or I and, and speak corporately and say, at least in a room like this, there's a good number of us who are mature that needs to be incredibly encouraging to you. Now again, you might, you might react against that for another reason. You might react against that because in our culture, actual humility is a horrifically bad thing. We like fake humility that can then be Instagrammed. We like being able to um, have the appearance of doing something good, the appearance of giving to charity, the appearance of not living a lavish lifestyle, but in reality, the suffering, the brokenness, the difficulty it comes from actually being humbled is something we run away from. We don't like to be able to say, I'm okay, because that has this air of pride to it. It has this air of power. You know, who of you is going to stand up and say you have a great relationship with Jesus? What are the rest of us going to think when, you know, someone's like, I do, I do. Technically, based on chapter 3, you should be the first one playing the, like, kid who is the teacher's pet and wants all the answers. Based on nothing of yourself, but there's joy in that hand raise. In town, you're okay. And so what I want to ask you this morning is, if you actually believed you were okay, not out of some, again, some easy prosperity gospel type thing, 
name it and claim it, but an actual belief in the gospel that you could, as Paul is doing right here, Paul, this is written way 20 at least, 20, 25 years after the Damascus Road. All right, Paul is not talking about himself in some shining, wonderful moment. He is hurting, he is broken, he is rotting in a prison that he does not know whether he is going to get out of alive. He does not know at this point whether he's going to have his fourth missionary journey. He does not know whether he's going to have an exit that our culture, at least, would say is a good death. It's just as likely that he is going to do what uh, one of my favorite saints, Count Ludwig von Zinzendorf, look him up, would say, preach the gospel and be forgotten. Paul's looking over his life and a bunch of other saints and being able to say you're okay. What would it look like in your life if someone could just come by and take off the religious burden that culturally you and your upbringing and your scars and your past in the church or your past out of the church has caked up upon your shoulders that defines maturity any way other than I know Jesus better and then I act and then I get to know Jesus better and then I act and then I get to know Jesus better and then I act. What would your life look like? What would you do differently? How would you feel? How would you come to church? How would you be active at in-town? How would you not be active at in-town? Wow. What would it mean? It's really the end of the sermon, but I want to set a soapbox here on the side for just a minute. You'll know I am a pastor for students and families here at InTown, so I preface this soapbox. Please do not hear what I am not saying. Don't hear what I'm not saying. Yes, double negative. This is not a suspect stealth volunteer push. It's not. It is not. Statistics, though, tell us, those who study patterns about the life that I live, the, the people who I swim in with most, your children, your grandchildren, your teenagers, those who are a little bit smaller and younger here in our congregation, those who study these populations, these generations, have come out with a number of incredibly alarming statistics over the years. It is true that the upcoming generations, the millennials, my generation, Generation Z, the year after, or the generation after, um, are leaving the church. To this day, as of data that was released two weeks ago, 46% of those who are between the ages of 18 and 35, which I just turned 35 last week, 18 to 35, now report no religious preference whatsoever. They do not identify with anything. Religion for them, useless or at least cobbled together. 
those who study the kids that stay. And please don't read any individual story into this. I know we've done life together. For some of you, you have beautiful stories of your kids believing in Jesus. Some of you have beautiful stories of your kids coming back to Jesus. Some of you, we are still trusting in the promises of God for the length of that beautiful story because your kids are not following Jesus. Do not hear this as an indictment of you, but rather just large statistics. But those who study this say that those who stayed had at least five significant relationships, meaningful relationships with adults who were not their parents. That's a lot. Five significant relationships. Of students just in America, not just Christians, but students, period. Sociologists say it's less than a quarter of those students who could fit that description of having five significant, meaningful relationships with an adult. If you do not believe the gospel is true for yourself, if you do not believe you're okay, they don't believe you're okay either. They don't believe they're okay. One of the things I love about this passage is that Paul is able to describe a community of people who over time are living the rhythms of the gospel publicly together. Every time we do a children's membership, I remind you all, and I am reminded myself, that I need these children to preach the gospel to my heart. And so do you. And in the same way, you vow, whether it's a baby being baptized or someone um, joining the church, you vow to be with them, to share the gospel with them, to promote their Christian growth and maturity. Well, if this is Christian maturity, not how much they know, not how they act, not how they dress, but Christian maturity as the rhythms of the gospel lived in public. If this is Christian maturity, then at least one of the applications of how would you live if you actually believed you were okay is that you would let others into your life from all ages and all walks of life who could know you, who could see those rhythms play out in real time. You would not see yourself as a part primarily of an organization or of a series of programs you would not simply go to the church, you would be the church gathering together, whether it's online or together. One theologian says the church is essentially a family of families. We look at ourselves as those who have no reason outside of Jesus to be friends together, but here we are. So I also beg of you, not as your pastor, but as a young dad 
and a husband here, I need to see the gospel play out in marriages longer than mine. I need to see not good parenting, but gospel parenting, which looks a lot less like something you read in a book and a lot more like you repenting to your kids after you have ripped them to shreds. I need to know how to die well. I need to know how to have a job well. I need to know how to figure out how to eat well. And none of those things actually am I going to get from an expert or a transaction. Ultimately, the well, if we define the well as maturity, living in the rhythms of God's gospel and grace, then I must have you. I must have you in my life and you must have each other. Let's pray. Lord God, thank you so much for all of the saints who have been in my life for so long. Not because of their goodness, but because of their openness to letting me see you work in them in the real and messy ways of life. May in town be known as those who walk with you and stumble with you and fall on our faces and must be picked up, but those who walk with you. Amen.